So this morning's been a reminder that nothing's perfect already. But sometimes, like Lori mentioned in, in the um, youth message, that, that we're about the pursuit of perfection. Um, talked to some people earlier this week and asked the question, and I'll you know, extend that question now, is what's your idea of something perfect? Have you experienced something that's been perfect in your life? What's a perfect day mean? And this can be interactive, so if you have a, like, this was a perfect day that I experienced, you can volunteer that. What's a perfect experience? A perfect day, would it be about the weather or an activity or a feeling or a combination of all those things as we think about, ah, oh, that was the perfect day? And maybe you've had a perfect day or a day that you've thought about as being perfect. Have you ever gotten a perfect score? Raise your hand if you've got a perfect score on the SAT. None of us. Oh, one of us on the math. I was this close on the math. I know people who've, you know, done things like that. How about bowling? Anybody ever bowled a 300? Bowled a 69. Okay, that's closer to my speed right there. We could go bowling sometime. Yeah. I don't know anyone that's bowled a 300. I, maybe. Maybe I do. I don't know. Came close. Good. That's awesome. Have you ever met the perfect person? Have you ever met someone and thought, oh, she's perfect? That's when you're, that's when you're dating her, right? Or wanting to, maybe. I don't know. He's perfect. Works the same way with, with guys. Or we do this with infants, especially newborns. Right? Tiny baby. Oh, he's perfect. And what's our qualification for that? Ten fingers and ten toes. Right. I mean, that is a pretty low bar. You got the right number of digits. Perfect. How long does that perfection last? Not very long. We call things perfect that aren't, but we continue in this pursuit of perfection. We want to pursue the perfect. We want to get to a place of perfection. People desire to please God. So as we are in this context, it's not just about the perfect day or the perfect score or whatever, rather perfect way that we use that word. But it's about our relationship with God. And we desire in our hearts to please God because we know that sin separates us from God. I mean, that's in our conscience. That's, we're taught that too. That, that we're separated from God through the sins that we've committed, through our sinful nature, through the choices we make. And so we want to be restored into our relationship with God. Relationship with God is the subject of our Bible class that we started just a couple weeks ago. The subject or the title uh, of the class is The Why of It All. And primarily what we've, we're f- going to focus on is our relationship with the Almighty, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful God who desires to be in relationship with us. And because we're made in our image, we desire to be in relationship with him. But on our own terms, sometimes. And so we desire, because we know that there's a brokenness in this relationship, we want to play a part in it. 
We want to play our part because that's just in our nature, isn't it? To accomplish, to do, to overcome. I have, I have hurt Paula sometimes. I'm not perfect either. Sorry to you know, ruin that for you if you were still suspecting. Why, why, why is there laughter? But I have hurt her feelings, done stupid things, made mistakes. So what's my response to that? I want to make up for it, right? Maybe I'll bring home flowers. Maybe I'll do something nice. Maybe I'll try to make her smile or laugh, right? Because I want to restore that relationship. I want to reopen lines of communication. I want, to, I want to make it work. I want to work it out. And we do the same thing in our relationship with God. We want our actions to count, our good deeds that we do. We want them to mean something. We want to make God smile. We want to balance the scales, but that's not how it works. We can't overcome. We can't erase the stain. We can't fix the issue. So there was a provision of priests. God ordained the priesthood of Aaron. He was the first high priest. His descendants were known as Levites, and Aaron was descended from Levi as well. So there's this Levitical priesthood that is established in the Old Testament. In verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 7 is talking about that. The Levitical priesthood. They were set apart at Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident. And Deuteronomy chapter 10 talks about how the Levites are going to be the ones who carry the Ark of the Covenant, who serve in and around the tabernacle, who take care of the, the holy thing. God established this priesthood, set them apart for service toward him. But then there were all these things that that then became and entailed. And, and those priests would serve in the wilderness with the tabernacle and then later through the temple that was built in Jerusalem. And the temple was a place of sacrifice. Priests would offer sacrifices for sins and in Verse 27, which is just past our reading for this morning. It talks about daily for their sins first, the sin of the priest, daily for them, and then for the people of God, these sacrifices would be offered. Sacrifices were to do a number of things. It was to give something up as a, an indication, right, that this is something that I am sacrificing or I am giving up. It was to be a substitute, so in the place of myself, for example, then this animal will be sacrificed. So the, you couldn't bring a wild animal because that didn't belong to you. You had to give up something that you owned. And then um, it was to be a substitute. And then the effect was to draw a person closer to God was the desired effect of the sacrifice. Well... That was the whole intention of it as it's understood. But it became mostly 
the substitute, the giving something up, the appeasing of God through what we bring to the table, what we put on the altar. Hebrews was written to people who were steeped in that tradition and leaning back into it. That's what we expect anyway. The, the author of Hebrews in a number of places, there's a lot of comparisons, right? And it's comparing the tradition that they've had and the instruction that they've received and saying, here's how Jesus fixes that or completes that or is better than or greater than that piece of what we've had, that part of our tradition. So let's not go back. Let's not go back there and get back into that system because perfection has never been attained through priests and sacrifices. This is what verse 11 says. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? We wouldn't need one. We'd still have that. There'd still be sacrifices. Even today, that's how it would work. Fast forward roughly 1,500 years, and the church in the time of Luther had its own system for salvation. Not far different from the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. It was a system of doing, of bringing, that was designed and intended to restore a closeness to God, but in the same way, kind of spiraled from there. There was confession and absolution, things we still practice and we've already done this morning. But then there was satisfaction in addition to that. So you'd go to the priest and you would confess, and Luther did this a lot, like six hours a day sometimes. And so after this long confession and then absolution, then the priest would say, now go do these things. So the grace of God would carry you a little bit, and then your actions would do a little bit more. And you would get some more grace, and you would do some more things. Go do these things. Maybe say these prayers or act in this way or do this service. The idea of purgatory was brought into the church, this cleansing time after death, before a person was then welcomed officially or finally. There was this time set aside for kind of final clean, cleansing. It's not biblical. And finally... There was the sale of indulgences. Pieces of paper that could be purchased that would bring a, a relative out of purgatory or allow for your own sin and guilt to be forgiven through this sacrifice, through this offering, through bringing something and giving it up. And that's what Luther found particularly offensive because that's not how it works luther was feared by this or sorry gripped by this fear of god because there was hierarchy and control and fear built into this 
whole religious system that they had at the time. He sought relief by becoming a monk, by extended confession, and, and by self-punishing actions that he committed. Sleeping on the floor, for example. It's believed that Luther would sleep on the stone floor of his small room just to be humble or to punish his own body into compliance with the law that he never felt he could keep because he couldn't, because none of us can. He could never find this peace. So if you are looking for a system, a plan, a step-by-step, here's what you can do in order to accomplish salvation, well, you're in good company because pretty much everyone's always looked for it. But you can't find it. And you don't find it here, and you don't find it in God's Word because it doesn't exist. Instead, we've been given a permanent priest. Jesus is a priest forever. This is what it says in verse 17 here in Hebrews 7. It is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Aaron was finite. The Levitical priesthood with a long line of service, but each priest was only for a time that we find in verse 23. But God's word and his oath, Jesus remains. Of the tribe of Judah, which was not a priestly line, and the author of Hebrews points that out, that Moses never said anything about a priest coming from Judah, and no one from this line ever served at the altar. So it was something new, something different that God was doing, not fixing the Levitical priesthood, but doing something different, something new, something that actually does work. The order of Melchizedek. There's this brief interaction, Genesis chapter 14, where Abram, having won the victory and bringing back the spoils, comes back, and then there's Melchizedek. Who is this guy? He just kind of shows up. He gets a tithe of all the winnings. That's awesome, right? But just understand a couple of things about him. He's, we're told in that text, he's priest of God Most High, and even his name, he's the king of righteousness. It's like a literal translation of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And in the text, it tells us that he is king of Salem, Shalom, the king of peace. The king of righteousness and the king of peace. And this is the one whose shoes Jesus fills, or who was the type where Jesus then completes that. The king of The king of righteousness is the priest forever. Wow. So even in this character who shows up momentarily in Genesis chapter 14, the guy who, you know, if if you were seeing the movie credits, he would be way down at the bottom of the list, right? He's not the star of the show. He's one of those characters that you go, wait, who was that? Special guest appearance, that's right. That's, that's, the, that's the kind of thing that Melchizedek is. And yet, here he comes. And he's back in the text, showing us who Jesus really came to be. 
Jesus the one who guarantees a better covenant. Through his fulfillment of being the king of righteousness and being the king of peace and being the priest forever, he guarantees, as verse 22 says, a better covenant. Not a covenant that required that we do things, but a covenant that was one directional because everything was done for us on our behalf. Not on the basis of a birthright, the Levitical priests were born into it. We're not born into it. We're rescued. We're pulled out from it. And not through our action or our sacrifice, but through his work alone, he saves us. Verse 25 from Hebrews 7 says this, Consequently, he, being Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Who draw near to God. So there's that draw near, that part of the sacrifice that was intended but really didn't seem to be fulfilled, that we would draw near so we can draw near to God through Jesus, the high priest, who makes intercession for us forever because he is forever, the indestructible life, the living Jesus saves us, and now we have a better hope. This is the argument of chapter 7. We have a better hope, one not built on systems and requirements and sacrifices and us, but one that's built on nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. Here's verse 19. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Luther recovered hope in Jesus. In the word... His, his priest told him, you know what, Martin, you need to stop confessing. And you need to open the Bible. And he broke open the scriptures and read it instead of to study it and learn the words in it and find the things he was expected to know in it. Instead, he read it for himself. And he read Romans 1.17, and he called that his window through which the gospel light shined. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther read those words, and all of a sudden it was like that V8. Remember those V8 commercials? Ah, I could have had a V8. Ah, I could have had the grace of God this whole time. Was Luther's wake-up moment. And that really sparked the Reformation. We remember it on October 31st because that's when the first action took place. But the seeds were planted before that. Before October 31, 1517, Luther discovered the gospel for himself and began to share it with other people around him. 
that it's about the grace of God, that it's about faith in Jesus, that it's not about the things that we do or how we punish ourselves or how much we confess or how good we try to live, that it's about the grace of God alone. By faith in Jesus, we are made perfect. We're made perfect. We don't have to pursue perfection because God, when God sees you, believer in Jesus, he sees his perfect child. Not because you have ten fingers and ten toes, but because the blood of Jesus cleanses you from your sins. You're perfect in his sight. You are forgiven of your sin. And you have a future and a hope that's in him alone. We, are, we see ourselves, we probably don't see perfect. When you look in the mirror, you probably think, oh, Where'd that line come from? What is this thing under my eye that I'm not sure what that is? Maybe I should get that checked. Why is that hair changing color? I don't know. But God sees perfect. When we look in the mirror, we see more than just our appearance. We see maybe our past. Maybe the things we've carried. Maybe the things that we've done. Maybe the people that we've hurt. And we're going to continue to do those things. But God still sees perfect. Because he sees Jesus. And so we are set free. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a conversation with the Jews who had believed in him. So probably the same mindset the author of Hebrews is writing into, Jesus was speaking into, talking about freedom and, and these, the response is, we're children of Abraham. We've got this. God's on our side already. We don't have to worry about anything. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's live in that freedom. Let's not keep carrying the burdens of our sinfulness. Let's live in that freedom so that we can serve in that freedom. So that we can have joy in Jesus. So that we can be among the priesthood of all believers serving the Lord, our God, blessing others. Freed from the burden of trying to be perfect, we are made perfect by our perfect high priest. We have a better hope. It's Jesus. Amen.